Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi, everyone. This is Vitos Karalias from Northwestern University, and welcome to another edition of Ask a Chair with SAEM Rams. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Van Royen at the Brigham and Women's Hospital of Harvard. Dr. Van Royen is internationally recognized for his extensive work in humanitarian assistance during war, conflict, and disaster around the world. He has worked in the field with numerous relief organizations in over 30 countries affected by both war and disaster, including Somalia, Bosnia, Rwanda, Iraq, North Korea, Chad, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. He has also been a policy advisor to several organizations, including the World Health Organization and the United Nations. Domestically, he has worked with the American Red Cross to provide relief assistance during 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, and the 2010 Haiti earthquake. He's also worked with the U.S. Secret Service, NASA, and the U.S. Public Health Service with the Navajo and Apache tribes in Arizona and New Mexico. Lastly, he has authored the textbook Emergent Field Medicine, and his most recent book, The World's Emergency Room, describes the evolution of modern humanitarian aid and the threats to healthcare workers in the conflicts. Today, Dr. Van Royen joins us as the Chair of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is also the Director and Co-Founder of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, a university-wide academic center at Harvard that advances evidence-based humanitarian aid. Hello, Dr. Van Royen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Morning. Great to be with you today. So... I noticed that you were the director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. What are some of the joys and challenges of this role? And what do you see the role of the emergency medicine physician in humanitarianism and global health? Thank you. So HHI is a a university-wide program that really focuses on helping NGOs, non-government organizations, UN agencies, and international actors do a better job in the field. We train people, we do leadership development, and we advance evidence in the field. The joy of it is actually, it's just important. I mean, if anybody can find their one thing, their one mission in life and dedicate 30 years of your career to doing it, and it's it's worth that investment, then it's a gift because it's really, you know, it's such a joy to be able to do something that you really feel inherently is important. And I feel that the work of HHI is very important. It comes with major challenges. I mean, there's two buckets of challenges that one is that the humanitarian field itself is just complicated. It's very it's complicated by difficulties in access, getting people to the field safely, having people return safely and not get in trouble when they're there, dealing with populations that have such profound needs that it's almost overwhelming. But another challenge, actually, is trying to do something that is an operational humanitarian program within the construct of Harvard and a university, which is not easy. One of the big problems that, or challenges that I have is that Harvard is a very traditional teaching and research organization and entity is not used to having people go to Yemen or Syria or Chad and work around the world in places that are in conflict. So, you know, my challenges are both the complexity of the field that we work in inherently and also taking an operational program and landing it in a traditional academic institution. Interesting. You've traveled to some fascinating places. What are your most memorable destinations? So, yeah, no, I've been really fortunate to work with organizations that have reached populations in very trying times. And so I think for me, the most memorable times is 
very much like an emergency medicine, actually, when you can really do your job and when you really can take care of a very sick patient or a very complex setting, like a disaster setting in your ED. The humanitarian world is like that too. There's a lot of waiting and there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of access problems. But when you can actually do your work and you can work in settings that are very complicated and you can feel that you're making a big difference, then it's really magic. I mean, it's really wonderful. And so even though it's really hard to be in places like Sudan during the war or Somalia during the war or Rwanda during the genocide or North Korea, where it's so constrained and people are so pressured, you can barely do anything. The fact that you feel like you can make a contribution in that really complicated setting is really gratifying. So for me, the the more remote, the more challenging places, in many ways, the better, because they're more challenging and I really feel like I can make a difference. In terms of how you travel to all these difficult areas to access and you go all around the world, how do you balance that with your career and kind of life back in the U.S.? Yeah, the balance is always the tricky part. And and when I mentor people and I hesitate to sort of use my experience as the model because it's complicated to try to do this. So first is that I always saw emergency medicine as my home base and medical practice in the United States as my home base. And when I traveled and worked abroad, it's really completely different. I mean, it's a very different job and a very different series of priorities, but the the philosophies carry. In other words, as emergency medicine physicians, we understand the health system. We understand how to manage both patients and systems with incomplete information, and we have to make decisions. That actually serves you well in the humanitarian field where there's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of threats, a lot of challenges, and that skill set actually translates. One of the ways that I was able, I think, to make it jointly supportive, in other words, my, my role as an emergency doctor to be valuable in the field and my role in the field as a physician and relief worker to be valuable in my emergency practice is to blend those practices academically. So that means that when I go in the field, not only would I work and help and assist populations, but I turn it into scholarship. And that scholarship would help build my academic credibility back home. And when I return back home, I teach about the cases and the issues that I had in the field, which would really help me translate the work in the field into academic endeavors. So really trying to make those two worlds co-supportive. Can you expand a little bit about that? I recently attended a lecture about turning scholarly work into scholarship, that concept of a lot of us do a lot of work, but sometimes we don't do that little extra step to actually kind of get it credit for it or kind of disseminate what we've done. And can you just expand a little bit about what's worked for you and kind of any advice for residents and medical students who might be able to benefit from those concepts? Yes. And I, I give advice all the time as a chairman of emergency medicine in a big academic department with 65 faculty and residents and others. I, you know, I mentor a lot of people and what you've said is is kind of how I try to get people to understand that in academic medicine in particular, your job is to innovate. Your job, whether it's in the clinical setting or clinical operations, or whether it's in network development or in uh, your particular area of traditional emergency medicine like toxicology or ultrasound, or in funky areas like in the humanitarian space, you know, your work is to build a model that presses boundaries and is cutting edge and that tries new things. And people do that all the time. What they don't do is then translate it to scholarship. And so I think the currency of academics, for better or for worse, 
our grants and papers. And so I think it's really important to be able to take those lessons that you've done, whether it's in advancing new innovations in ultrasound AI, for example, or whatever, um, or in international emergency medicine, and bring it back home and write about those issues. It's hard, right? Because life is busy, you're working clinically, you're out in the field, you're doing your work there. But at the end of the day, that's the thing that is going to help translate the work you do in the field to be for a successful academic career. And it's really important. That's fantastic. Thank you for expanding upon that. You also mentioned in your response kind of that dichotomy of being both a professor and chair at Harvard, but then also being on the ground in kind of these war-torn or disaster relief areas. I feel like sometimes there's this mentality in emergency medicine that in order to be the gritty EM doctor, you have to coming from that gritty EM place. And obviously kind of you've worked in some of probably the most austere environments in the world, yet you're also a director and chair at one of the most resource rich places in the world. Can you talk about that traditional dichotomy and how maybe that doesn't really exist and perhaps coming from one to the other gives you both a unique perspective and kind of advantages? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you're right in that institutions like Harvard and at the Brigham were well-resourced, even all of Western medicine comparatively is well-resourced. I think the thing that prepares you for work in places that are, that are very challenging is not necessarily your ability to work with a certain patient population in the United States. Actually, the work in humanitarian aid, for example, is sometimes very little medicine at all. I mean, there's medical work that you do, but there's most of it's organizational. Most of it's trying to get resources to get things happening on the fee- in the field, recruit people to help, et cetera. So most of my work in the humanitarian sphere is not clinical. It's actually organizational. And my role as a chair or my prior roles in administration at Harvard or when I was at Hopkins before helped me develop a sense of skill in leadership, in organization, in project management, in budgeting, in all of those things that actually make a a lot of sense when you're in the field. So I think that the ability to translate skills that you develop here and put them in the field is not necessarily based on the type of clinical experience you are having in the United States, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. That totally makes sense. Thank you for expanding upon that. You've worked, I guess, with disaster response internationally, but you've also done that here at home with Hurricane Katrina and the World Trade Centers during 9-11. How did the experiences at home kind of differ, or I should say in the U.S., differ from international aid work? In what ways were they kind of the same? Yeah, so I I mean, I got to say that I have had an interest in my general and generalizable interest is in populations in stress and populations that are experiencing extreme stress. That's why I worked with the Indian Health Service because chronically it's just a so challenged environment. That's why I worked with domestic disaster response as well. And that's especially why primarily I work in global disasters. I will say that the mechanisms, the nomenclature, the organizational lexicon for domestic response is entirely different. They are not translatable actually. And so somebody that is an expert in, say, disaster medicine in the United States that works with DMAT teams, that works with the American Red Cross or any other organization to help provide assistance during a natural disaster in the U.S., 
That's great. And that's a wonderful skill. It is completely different than actually working in the international humanitarian sphere. The organizations are different. The way they communicate with each other and work together are different. Their priorities are different. It is completely different. So the only thing in common is that we might use the word disaster, but it is entirely different in the way that we do the work. Certainly things like prioritizing needs like emergency healthcare, emergency water, sanitation, housing, all of that stuff can be common to both settings. But the organizations that you work with in order to kind of negotiate how you're going to get things done and the way they work, completely different. So that when I have people that have an interest in disaster relief in general or the humanitarian environment in general, I really do press them as to they ought to be choosing where they want to focus their time because the international sphere is very nuanced and very different. I will add actually that just like emergency medicine as a discipline is fundamentally different in so many ways to say internal medicine or cardiology or other fields because of the the nature of the way we practice and how fast we have to practice and being essentially a safety net, global humanitarian aid is kind of like that as it relates to global health. So when you say global health, it can mean many things, right? It can mean community health workers and building hospitals and health systems and healthcare manpower, et cetera. But humanitarian aid is working when things like that don't work and when things all fall apart and when the political environment's so hostile, you can't do anything. So Aid is not only, humanitarian aid is not only different between disaster relief in the U.S. compared to internationally, it's also very different than longer-term developmental priorities. And that is a nuance that really needs to be understood by people who want to work in the humanitarian sector. Interesting. What advice would you have for residents or medical students that are hoping to find a job one day in emergency medicine that allows them to both practice in the U.S. and abroad? Lots of advice, and I talk to my residents many times a week and to many people about this as well. Thing one, I think, is to get a lot of perspectives, to talk to people who have been in this field, who have built a field in this, and who balance this world of being working domestically and also getting meaningfully in the field, and talk about how they did it. So the first thing I would recommend for anybody who is new or just students or residents who are just thinking about this is just to get a list of people to talk to about it and ask on a Zoom call for 20 minutes about their career and how they did it. The next thing I would do is read a lot. If you have an interest in one particular area, like the humanitarian field, for example, there's so much information out there. There's podcasts, there's webinars, there are online classes, there's everything. So there's no excuse not to know more about the field that you're hoping to be in. And then thirdly, just be persistent because just like medical training takes a long time and developing medical expertise and getting to be an attending someday takes a long time, this is a brand new field for you. And so if you're seeking to build a, an additional career in global health, humanitarian aid, or whatever it is, it just takes a long time. And you need to gain experience. You need to gain exposure. You need to have mentors. You need to have people who are exemplars who've done it before. And then you have to have a way to decide how you're going to blend those worlds together. So if you're in academics, for example, just as you really aptly pointed out, you have to actually make your humanitarian or your global health work an academic pursuit. So I think those are the, that, those are the pieces of advice I would give people who are just kind of looking to get into the field. 
Fantastic. You mentioned kind of a lot of themes that several chairs have brought up, which is kind of that importance of mentorship, both formal and informal, as well as it certainly takes some persistence to carve out whatever niche that you're looking to carve out. You also expanded upon reading and learning and kind of immersing yourself in the field, which I think is always easier done when you find yourself passionate about something kind of like you have when it comes to your humanitarian efforts. Our next question was that, you know, you served as a policy advisor for both the WHO and the UN. How does developing international policy differ from, I guess, practicing in the U.S. in a resource-rich environment? And then how do you balance this role with your responsibilities at your home institution? Yeah, so advisory roles really come out of having developed some baseline expertise and recognition that you have expertise and something to offer. So if you want to affect policy, which I think is really important, you do so in a couple ways. One is that you do really deep research in an area that actually is of use to a policy group and policy being an organization that sets standards or attributes funding to something. So for example, the World Bank may want to develop their own spending strategy in the Democratic Republic of Congo to support women in business. In the Congo being a conflicted area, you need a lot of research to understand exactly what they should do and what's going to work and what's not going to do. And so by by doing that research and engaging with the World Bank, we can actually advise them as to the things that work and don't work in the Congo, right? That's just an example. So the first way to affect policy is just to do your work well and be recognized for the specific important work that you do by policymaking bodies. The second one is actually then to have the experience and the background to be valuable to policymakers in a general sense. So I served recently on a Center for Strategic and International Studies panel on humanitarian access, where there was about 20 advisors from the humanitarian world to talk about how the U.S. policy should be shaped in order to improve the way we access war-affected populations. The reason I was on that panel is that I had a bunch of experience in war-torn areas, and I was in academics and write about this stuff, and I knew a lot of people that sort of talk in those circles. So the second way you get involved in policy advice and providing policy advice is just to be in the business, know people, and to be in a leadership role. So I don't see it as something that you have to balance with your home institution. It's something that comes out of what we do anyway. If you're in a particular discipline of medicine or a discipline of public health or a discipline of humanitarian studies, the group of people that are working in that are making decisions ultimately on the government or on the UN and international level, and you know them and you work with them and you serve to give advice to them. And so it's just kind of part of the work that we do. I have to ask, when you talk about policy, nothing seems to ever get done quickly, both with policy and politics. And then certainly working internationally, I'm sure sometimes nothing gets done quickly. Can you just talk about the patience that you've developed over time, being that you're coming from emergency medicine, which in my experience can have some of the least patient physician types out there? Yeah, so I'm not known for my patience either. I mean, I think that that is, I want things to be done <laughs> yesterday and And especially as a chair, I mean, I want to do these big sweeping initiatives, but I want them done immediately. And so I really do have to learn my own tendencies to be impatient. When it relates to policy, you know, it it can be quite frustrating because you think of all of the publications that you might do that you think say something that should affect policy that really never get there, right? So 
at the end of the day, it's a, it's a little bit frustrating to have a two-year research study boiled down to five bullet points handed on a scrap of paper to a senator who may or may not even read it. So th- those issues are actually quite frustrating. I think the most difficult thing about policy in the U.S. is what we all know to be the case, and that is the, the challenges in the government for just everything is politicized. So you try to affect change in policy, but unless you have the right ear of the right party at the right time, then it may or may not go anywhere. So part of policy, like research, like anything, is just persistence and trying to be in the room, trying to be logical, trying to bring evidence to forward. And sometimes it can really pay off and really change policy. And a lot of times it doesn't go anywhere and you do it again. So I think that Yeah. As an emergency physician, you really do have to recognize our own ADD when it comes to trying to get things done and recognize our own impatience and just keep being persistent about making those changes. So lastly, I wanted to ask all your international experience and also domestic experience and kind of disaster relief. I would be curious to hear your thoughts or kind of your perspective with regards to COVID-19, which kind of came upon the, both the U.S. and the world quite quickly. Did it give you any kind of unique perspectives? Is there anything that you noticed or thematic elements that you were able to take away that from your international and domestic experience? Yes, a lot. And the first lesson I would say is that we live in a global society and a global economy, and we can't be insular. We have to recognize the fact that epidemics or pandemics cross borders. They do so quickly. They affect populations and they require us to understand that we're part of a global ecosystem. The second thing is the power of politics and how destructive it can be. We all know that and we don't have to dwell on it, but it's been actually just very challenging because we see the direct results of poor communication and and management. Also to me, it's the recognition of vulnerabilities of certain populations. The idea that a disaster, whether a natural disaster or a humanitarian emergency in war, strikes people randomly. We know that's not true. We know there's population vulnerability. We know the poor are vulnerable. We know certain subgroups of oppressed populations are vulnerable based on ethnicity, race, etc. We know this. COVID made it very clear. It showed it in the starkest terms. But it is like that all over. And it's been before COVID. We know that. The fact is that we have large sectors in the United States and around the world that suffer disproportionately because of the their, their place of birth or their race, which we can't tolerate anymore. And the confluence of things like Black Lives Matter and COVID, I think created, I, I hope, some sort of, you know, a social cultural reckoning around the need to be much more aggressive about the way that we take care of each other, take care of our populations and equal the playing field. Global health does that. And the idea of humanitarian aid, its goal is to level the playing field and to focus on vulnerable populations. Those same lessons need to be done at home here too. So we we do that. And, And I'll close that thought by the privilege I feel in emergency medicine and as a chair, actually, because many of my friends and colleagues who are really frustrated at the state of health inequities and the state of racial bias and all of that in the world today are frustrated because they can't do anything about it. They don't know what to do about it. They can only work in their tiny little world when when we're all cloistered with COVID. I, as a chair in a pretty big academic department, can do something real about it. I can hire the right way. I can recruit the right way. I can 
assure that my patients get the best care no matter what. I can look and dig around for health inequities that I don't see, but we need to find. I can engage with school systems so that I can create a pipeline of kids who want to really see that they can engage in the healthcare employment, healthcare employment, and look at ways that they can come up in the system. So in many ways, our field in emergency medicine, because it touches so closely the social issues around us, is a gift that opens our eyes to social issues and allows us to act on it. And it's inspiring to me, right, to be able to actually act on the things I see that are wrong in the world where everybody else doesn't know what to do. Man, I know what to do and I can do it. And I have the, the ability, at least in my small sphere, to really change things. And I think it's a gift to be able to do that. So that circles back with COVID, it circles back with our social issues, but it really does put a bow on the fact that the humanitarian aid environment, very much like just working in the ER and day to day, gives us a view of vulnerability and of inequity that we can do something about. And for that, that's worth an investment of a career. Gosh, thank you. That was so eloquently or well articulated. I really appreciate you sharing that insight. I really do hope too that this crucible that we've been in for the last seven, eight months does kind of act as a catalyst for change. You did also mention a kind of a unique concept that I wanted to underscore, which is that I think we all come with a very unique position in society as physicians and especially as emergency medicine physicians. And I think that, you know, just that position in society can be used for a lot of change if we put our mind to it and start to get a seat at the table. But well, thank you. Lastly, I just wanted to ask if you had any other advice or wisdom for our listeners. Yeah, I have advice. I'm not sure about wisdom, but I'll go with advice anyway. That if our, if our listeners really include trainees or people that are interested in our field, in emergency medicine, in medicine in general, I think it's important to realize that one of the best ways to preserve yourself is to have a mission in life. And when I have faculty and advise residents and faculty, I really hope that they can get, find their mission. Because part of the sense of wellness or purpose or gratitude about your life has to do with your ability to have a mission that means something to you and to, and to do it. And so I, I think that we're lucky. I know it's a stressful field. I know medicine is tough. I know all of it is, it's difficult training and it's difficult to practice, but, but it is a field that allows us to become what we want to become and to actualize and to try to actually make a change in the world and really be able to do it. And that's a gift. So actually, I'm really pleased with the ability that I've had in my career to find things that I'm passionate about and act on it. And I hope your listeners are too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for taking time to kind of share your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Pleasure. Well, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. And best wishes to editing that big mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to take a moment to recap the great discussion we had with Dr. Van Royen today. We talked about the ways emergency medicine is uniquely poised to provide care in austere and difficult environments, making it a great fit for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, where you might find yourself in a practice setting of ambiguity, threats, and challenges at every turn. With this, he shared how administrative experience, organizational leadership, and diplomacy can play as much of a role during international aid as, say, does the practice of medicine itself sometimes. Dr. Van Royen also touched upon the importance of turning your work into scholarship no matter what you do. It's important both for your academic career, but also to disseminate your knowledge and innovation to the medical community at large. 
For those of you who are interested in practicing abroad or in humanitarian medicine, Dr. Van Royen recommends finding formal or informal mentorship, as well as getting exposure however you can, whether that's through reading, studying, scholarship, or personal experience. Dr. Van Royen also shared some incredible insight about the current COVID-19 pandemic formed from his prior experiences as a leader in disaster medicine, both at home and abroad. And lastly, one thing that I was able to notice through his responses is how doing something that you are passionate about and that is truly rewarding can make it easy, or at least I should say enjoyable, to immerse yourself in a lifelong career of whatever field you choose. In this case, Dr. Van Royen found a real passion and joy out of caring for others during times of conflict and disaster, and that continues to drive his work today. That's all we really have time for today. For those of you who are interested in learning more about international medicine, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Dr. Van Royen's book, The World's Emergency Room. It's available on Amazon. Dr. Van Royen, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We truly appreciate it. 